and welcome back to Captivated Audience. I am Marie Lumbay, joined as always by my friend and professional colleague, Sam Sheen. Hi, Sam. How are you today? I am doing brilliant. Anytime we're doing analysis and hopefully making it easier for people to understand important regulatory docs, it makes my day. I agree with you. We are talking about the opinion of the European Banking Authority on the risks of money laundering and terrorist financing affecting the European Union's financial sector. It's a report released this March. So we covered virtual currencies and WASPs in the last episode. I am really liking the topic for today, Sam. I think that this is right up our alley. It's time for fintech and regtechs. Thing is, they are still mentioned as the sort of new kids on the block. Isn't tech the way forward? Tell us, Sam, why is regtechs and, and fintechs still a risky business according to the opinion? I know, and they're really not so new, as I mentioned to you. Back in 2000, I can remember when I was regulating. So in 2014, speaking to fintechs that were emerging in the market. So this is Ooh. this is not a, a brand new industry, but it appears that according to the EBA's opinion, more member state AML regulators are concerned that fintechs are not dealing with the FC risks that they should. And in fact, the concern has increased since they were first assessed in 2019. So it appears the concern relates to the products and services that these businesses offer, which happen to fall outside of the AML CFT regulations. Apparently, other regulators were also worried that fintechs continue not to really understand their AML CFT obligations. Now, to be fair, yes, there have been some fintechs who have been the subject of some adverse media, for sure. But it's just such a shame, Marie, it would have been great to actually specify what exactly are the products that are problematic for the member state regulators. But, you know, that might be in further detail down in the opinion, but I couldn't see them. That is really interesting and a bit funny, too, because in some jurisdictions established, well, here, old banks are calling themselves fintechs. Fintechs has been sort of like an it word and in some jurisdiction, a very big part of the financial inclusion as well. And then again, COVID made us all turn to a digital life, including our banking, which leads me then to the next part of the opinion, the close reliance and the use of reg tech for onboarding. There were some concerns in that case, wasn't it, Sam? That's right. There appeared to be uh, interlocked, according to the EBA's assessment. Now, think back to the EBA's 2018 opinion on the use of EKYC for onboarding. Now, at the time, a lot of people missed that opinion, uh, and I'm aware that some regulators have actually started assessing firms against the criteria in that opinion, but it wasn't highly advertised. A lot of people weren't as aware of it as they should have been. Well, here we are two years later, and regulators are still concerned that programmatic onboarding programs that rely on third-party providers, not just the ones providing data, but also the ones who might be providing a component of the KYC, those firms are not ensuring they have the right safeguards in place to make sure that using that technology means they're still complying with their KYC and other AML requirements. So interestingly, the EBA is carrying out what it describes as a stock take of various regtech solutions that are currently made available and used by firms across the EU. Now, their plan is following the conducting of that stock take, they are going to publish the results in Q2 of this year. Now, they also note that last year in September 2020, the Commission's digital finance strategy advocates an approach known as the same activity, same risk, same rules approach towards regulation. 
and they're claiming this will assist with the risks around the use of RegTech. And they also make some other re recommendations around extending regulatory powers over RegTech providers. Emery, you'll remember, one of those well-known amendments to the Fifth Anti-Money Laundering Directive was in relation to the ability to use EKYC by parties who were authorized, approved, licensed, and so forth by a member state. So what do you think about some of these recommendations to supposedly mitigate reg tech use risk for fintechs? Sam, what I'm not clear on is what it actually means for the firms who are building their own KYC technology or who have built it and offering it as a part of a suite of products or made available to the customer base. Will that actually fall into this area? Do you remember when we spoke to Ben Marsh? the CEO of mm -hmm. iMeta, right? Mm -hmm. And he talked about the benefits of using regulated reg techs and a number of firms in this case that would actually prefer that approach, which leads us into the recommendation in this case, which were to make sure you talk to your fintech and reg tech providers more, which I would say is you know, a given. What do you think of that suggestion, Sam? Well, I think while it's good to head in the right direction of doing a stock take and, and talking to reg tech providers, you know, I just, as I said before, you know, uh, Eric Wagner, who spoke to us, sat on a committee that discussed this very topic and the people missing from it were the reg techs. So, you know, yes, it's a great suggestion. But, you know, I can remember when I worked as a regulator, having an early stage reg tech call me and they wanted to come and demo some of the technology they had. And their thinking was that if we were prepared to look at it or authorize it, then that would be a great endorsement for their product. And now that's just kryptonite to any AML regulators. So obviously we turned it down, right? Any regulator would have done that. But what I'm not so comfortable with, and, and you know, I've mentioned this before, I'm really not clear on why this approach is constantly hammering EKYC tools and not other types of technology that are used as part of an AML prevention program. So for years, we've been fine with allowing people to pick their own providers for sanction screening, transaction monitoring, and now even RegTech that builds the rails that allow for automated suspicious activity reporting submission. So I'm really struggling to understand here why one, we have such an emphasis on just that technology alone, but two, why are we making the financial institutions become the pseudo regulators of these when in the very amendment in the five AMLD directive, the invitation is given to basically create some sort of authorization regime for them? What do you think? I think that this is a topic that we could probably, again, spend a lot of podcasts on and discussing. Am I going over the top? Like you have done a ton of work in terms of designing transaction monitoring models and other automated systems for clients over the years. Why do you think nobody's interested in giving such close scrutiny to them as compared to KYC or, or am I missing something? Not sure, Sam. It might have to do with another favorite acronyms of ours, GDPR, with KYC tools and technology to certify your identity with biometrics or whatnot. We are tiptoeing around big words with big implications. We're talking about integrity and legal certainty and stuff like that. It is a hot potato. So let's move on from that hot potato into another one, terrorist financing. You said that this one had the largest score in terms of understood risk concern that had not changed in 2019. What does the opinion say when it comes down to terrorist financing? Because this is quite interesting and I would say still, unfortunately, a very current topic. 
Yeah, very true. Well, the opinion draws the conclusion that there's a perception that firms such as banks, payment providers, foreign exchange businesses, e-money, and credit providers are the most vulnerable to terrorist financing risks because of the weaknesses in their systems and controls designed to mitigate terrorist financing risks. Well, Sam, now that just arises more questions in my book. Newly developed firms, fintechs and others, they rely heavily upon new tech and data, no, not so much dependency on, on legacy systems. So what does then the weaknesses of systems mean? What am I missing here? Well, it doesn't go into that degree of granularity, but in a future podcast, when we talk about the risk factor guidelines, you do get some signaling there as to what exactly it is that they're finding problematic and just a few hints. They talk about considering geographies where terrorism financing is known to be actively solicited, for example, or individuals known to have family or other associate connections to people who are known to be engaged in terrorist financing. I mean, it's a really broad reach. It goes well beyond, say, the PEP reach of known associates, for example. So I, I suppose in some respects, it, it feels like the messaging here is that these particular businesses, and there's not many that have been left out or missing a trick, I think it's got more to do with their, they have greater exposure because of the nature of their products and services as compared to say investment firms, for example, where it's perceived that risk is somehow less prevalent, but it really doesn't go into a whole lot of detail. Okay, just to be clear, I am all for prevention and combating terrorist financing. And there is probably much left for the financial institutions and industry to do here and not just rely upon sanctioned name screening of your client database and the screening of cross-border transactions. I am also trying to put this into to practical use. And in order to do that, as you mentioned, monitoring people around sanctioned individuals or entities, the amount of data and information to be processed. I wonder, is that a Pandora's box just waiting to be opened? Uh, I think the recommendation made is helpful, but I think it might be missing a trick in terms of what it means operationally. Agreed. Uh, my point exactly, you know, how to make this work in practice. Yeah. I mean, m my perception is, is, you know, if you look at what the risk factor guidelines are now going to be introducing, what they're talking about is essentially a much more in-depth, fuzzy matching of adverse media that goes beyond sort of the traditional idea of the broadsheets or the general newspapers, right? So you're going to be going into websites that might be kept by advocacy groups, or you may be looking at regional news sources, which historically you wouldn't have relied on as uh, deciding whether to onboard a customer, but could be signaling some sort of association or activity. You're going to be going into Facebook, looking at potential uh, people who are supporting ter known terrorism groups, for example, going to people's Twitter accounts, looking at other information uh, that could be available, which normally you wouldn't take the time to look at. So it's a very different type of risk to monitor, and it's not easily found. And if you do find it in a newspaper, that's probably a little bit too late, in my view. I mean, what do you think about their recommendation as well about the public-private partnership idea? Well, you know me, Sam. I've been on my soapbox forever, it seems like, talking about cooperation and information sharing. And, of course, public-private partnership is a good start. My concern is that other financial institutions might not be offered a place at the table at the PPP. And to sum it up, yeah, we have a long way to go, much to do, and, yeah, let's get cracking. 
And that's it for part two of this series. Join us for part three, where we'll look at the European Banking Authority's comments on the risks of crowdfunding platforms and some of the fraudulent tactics and lessons learned from the last 12 months in trying to mitigate financial crime during our working from home and broader challenges encountered during the pandemic. We'll see you then.